It's This Week in the CLE, a conversation about Greater Cleveland's news by the people who bring you that news, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, and we begin this podcast with columnist Mark Namick, crime reporter Adam Faris, Cuyahoga County reporter Courtney Astolfi, and our expert data reporter Rich Exner. For news this week, no place was popping like Cuyahoga County's jail, where we have a lot to unpack. Adam, let's start with what sounds like a drug ring being run by the guards. The investigation appears to have started with an inmate overdose. Before we get into details about the ring, tell us about the guard who was arrested and what did he do? Uh, So he was a member of the special response team, which has been something that uh, people have been pointing out for a long time now. Uh, That's been a a big problem with uh, a lot of different things. Um, sort of, uh, you know, withholding food from inmates as punishment. Uh, several of them, several other SRT members have been arrested, uh, for, you know, attacks on inmates or, uh, things outside the jail. Um, so he, he was part of that team. The investigation started, um, they, they actually watched him on surveillance video one day, watched him go into a cell, uh, and leave that cell. They immediately, the sheriff's department investigators went into the cell and found, uh, I believe, ten oxycodone pills. That was the trigger. That it was. It was. They didn't. They hadn't watched that video because they heard he was doing yeah, this. No. Yeah, they did. We're still sort of trying to pin down exactly why they were looking at this guy. There's some um, indication out there that he had been doing this for a while. And there was a statement in court this week that one of his um, drug deliveries led to an overdose. They haven't said whether it was fatal or otherwise. Right. They haven't said whether it was a a fatal overdose or not, but that seems to be the first big sort of uh, target, you know, why they targeted this specific officer. So other than seeing him in the video, how did they catch him? Did they just start watching him much more closely? Yeah, they, they... Watched him that day and went and immediately arrested him after they, they found the pills. Oh, that was it. So, so it wasn't like was he it. came to work no, and he, had well, pills in his pockets. They, yeah, no, he did. He had uh, uh, about 1500 bucks in cash and uh, tips tips of gloves that the special response team uses in his pockets. Those tips were cut off. Um and those are and a cell phone that they seized that he was conducting these drug tra- transactions with. So they went and arrested him immediately after they found the the pills. And so now uh, we've had word that that there's a suspicion there's a much bigger drug ring operating. Where did that information come from? That came from a, uh, his initial appearance. Uh, that it was actually a two part initial appearance, but the first uh, first uh, court appearance, the uh, prosecutor said that they were investigating a larger drug ring involving other corrections officers possibly dealing drugs in the jail to inmates. And it's more than drugs, too. They also said something about contraband, but they didn't say what it was. Right, yeah. Contraband, we're still trying to kind of pin down exactly what that kind of contraband is, but yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like a big deal. Um, The other powerful story from the jail is a suicide. National Guard veteran Nicholas Colbert hanged himself after telling jail workers upon his arrest that he had tried to kill himself previously, which normally sets off or is supposed to set off alarm bells and get somebody watched. Adam, the family opened up to you a bit about his battles with addiction. Uh, He had broken the habit a few years ago, right? 
Uh, he struggled with it on and off, did, um, uh, you know, in and out of rehab, tried it through the, the VA, uh, and, uh, was, was struggling with it up until his death. It sounds like, um, he had, uh, survived an overdose on April 2nd and, uh, went, was arrested by Maple Heights, uh, I think it was May 7th and taken to the jail. And from all indications, the arrest was, uh, I believe heroin possession as well as meth and, uh, taken to the jail and I, I think it's worth pointing out it's one of the most powerful stories I've read in a long time because of the mom's comment Adam that she gave to you that she had hoped for the day that he would be arrested and put in jail because she thought that might be you know a strong step towards his recovery and so obviously the devastation of learning that he, he dies in jail where she thought it was the safe place you know it's it's hard to get your mind around that but when she talked about that you know, what was she trying to say to you on that point? Yeah, that was pretty much it. It actually kind of reminded me of doing a, um, when we did our Heroin's Human Toll series, it was almost like a, a verbatim sort of, um, you know, the, the, the struggle once, once somebody gets addicted, the struggle to overcome that. And a lot of the families we talked to for the Heroin's Human Toll said the same thing that they hoped you know, maybe jail was the option because you get in a court order treatment. Somebody's there supervising it. There's repercussions if you don't follow through with that. That's what they were hoping for. And but with the didn't. number of deaths they've had, including a bunch by suicide, and the focus on making sure that if somebody has has signs of that. Um, that they're watched. How how does this go south? This guy said, you did the story, you, he said when he came in, yes, I've tried to kill myself. That's supposed to be the trigger to a different kind of supervision, which apparent, apparently didn't happen? It didn't happen. They put him into general population for, I think, a day and a half, two days, and then he was put in a special veterans pod, which is you know something that they, you know, they do for veterans who have served our country and um it's a little bit of nicer of a setup there but it's also a little bit less of it's not the same as suicide watch where there's people checking in all the time and there's uh protocols in place to watch them and, and things like that so he was pretty much on his own in there yeah so the family goes from from hope that he might overcome it to complete despair because they've they've lost him um we've been talking about the jail a lot for the last six eight months uh, you know, largely because of the deaths in the uh, follow-up Marshall's investigation showing all the bad conditions. One solution to all these jail issues might be getting a better level of guard, maybe one that doesn't deal drugs to the inmates. Uh, there was some good news on that front this week, right? The, yeah, the OPBA voted uh, on the county's final contract offer. They actually went and uh, the county opened negotiations early to try to get this done uh, quicker. And they're going to be getting uh, new hires are going to be hired in about three dollars an hour more, or more than three dollars an hour more than uh, what they had previously been. I, I think it was like fifteen dollars in change uh, that they were previously getting. Um, and you and Courtney is, had done reporting. Actually, it was Courtney that showed uh, that they're they were among the lowest paid jail guards in the state, right, Courtney? Of the largest twenty Ohio counties, they were second lowest. Just dollars below other large facilities. How does that fit in with, say, uh, other law enforcement, uh, police in large cities or patrol or 
Are they still on the low end, though? Yeah, they'd still... Well, for, for new hires, $18 would probably still be a little bit on the low end, but uh, it's a significant, I mean, that's a significant increase. They're about on par with a lot of other correction, you know, jails that are staffed with corrections officers as opposed to deputies, which get paid more uh, for the most part in other counties. And uh, so that, yeah, that that's seen as a way to entice, not only just to entice more quality candidates, but also to retain them because their step increases will also be a little bit higher too. And one of the challenges, this is all happening with very low unemployment rate. So it's hard to compete for, for jobs. If I don't have to work in the jail and I can get a decent paying job doing something else, I'm probably going to avoid working in the jail. The jail remains a subject of a criminal investigation now in the hands of Attorney General Dave Yost. The seeds of that investigation came from Cuyahoga County Auditor Corey Swaysgood. He did an audit of the county's IT department and spotted what appeared to be conflicts of interest. That led to a criminal investigation of that department. And when people started dying in the jail last year, the grand jury looking at the IT department expanded its focus to the jail. This week comes news that Corey Swaysgood likely is leaving. Corey, where is he going? He, <clears throat> excuse me, here on city council in Erie County, approved last night the hiring of him as their finance director. He'll be making a lot less in Huron than he than he makes here in Cuyahoga County, um, from one hundred and four thousand dollars down to ninety two thousand in Huron. So that definitely raises questions about why he's leaving. But they also offered him thirty thousand here beyond that, so he's really giving up well over forty thousand dollars a year to leave Cuyahoga County. Has he said anything publicly about why he's leaving? He said he wants to go to Huron because it's closer to his hometown and his family. He also said he wants to make a difference in a small community. But that offer by Cuyahoga County Council, thirty grand, that's huge. So it it makes you wonder immediately why does he want to leave so bad? And he has kids. So, you know, in the future he's going to have to pay for college. If he stayed out Armin Budish's term It'd be over what one hundred sixty thousand dollars that he is is uh, giving up that could have gone to the couch fund. It's kind of a staggering development, and he has been the watchdog. He's done all sorts of audits. You've written about, right? I mean, he's the guy kind of keeping people accountable. He's been very important over the past couple of years. Not only the IT department pro, but he's brought to light um, misuse of overtime payments and other issues. He's. His work has been trying to keep Cuyahoga County in line. Him leaving in the middle of this tumultuous time period, it just makes you wonder where that watchdog role is going to go. I'm sure whoever comes in after him will do their part, but that's a lot of institutional knowledge. Corey knows what's been going on in this county over the past few years under Armin Budish's administration. One of the more uh, popular pieces on Cleveland.com this week was a who's who list of everyone involved in the criminal investigation that Corey Swaysgood uh, sparked. Adam, you put this all together. How many people did you feature in that? Oh, man, I didn't, did not count uh, exactly everybody, but it's it's got to be a well over 60, 50, 60. Uh, and that's just that's not everybody that's necessarily – charged or as a target of the investigation, but just everybody whose records were subpoenaed or their emails were subpoenaed or who's somehow tangentially been involved all the way down to, I think my last one was Mahoning County Prosecutor Paul Gaines, who's 
in charge of going over certain documents to see if attorney-client privilege, you know, applies to whatever kind of records the prosecutors are seeking through the subpoenas. But it's it's ballooned to be quite a few, especially as these indictments have been coming out from, you know, the the warden and some of the corrections officers that have been coming in here recently. It's we're we're up to I think twelve total people charged. Do you you expect then to continue expanding this as it as it moves along? There's no end in sight to this investigation. Yeah, there's no indication at all that this is over. I mean, there the the cases that are being picked up now. I, I think one of the last ones was from 2018. So they're going back. It seems like and they're they're really coming through a lot of some of the um the I, I guess the the bad incidents of allegations of you know guard abuse, officer abuse of inmates. They've gone all the way back to the beginning of 2018, so I think there's definitely more to come. So we've spent all this time so far talking about Cuyahoga County and the challenges it's facing, Um, and we really haven't seen much in the way of corrections to this. I mean, there's not a whole lot of hope that things are going to change, Uh, and and it kind of puts a spotlight on the Cuyahoga County Council uh, this government was created 10 years ago with an idea of the Cuyahoga County Council providing oversight, having hearings, but the council president, Dan Brady, seems more bent on having peace than in holding people accountable in a public setting. Courtney, have you seen any signs that they're going to start asking some difficult questions? Well, there is the issue of the prosecutor's office advising them to stay away from dicey jail issues as those issues are sorted out. But yesterday we saw the confirmation hearings for now law director Greg Huth. And counsel did really dig into issues that have been raised throughout this investigation. They were asking him about, you know that you respond to both the executive and the counsel. Will you be, I think Councilman Jack Schron said something to the effect of, there's a sense that the law director answers more to the executive and and council wanted to make sure their line of questioning seemed to make it seem that they want Greg Huth to know that he's got to come to them. They're part of this equation too. They also asked him if he'd been in the jail. They asked him his thoughts on making the sheriff an elected position again. They really dug in during the confirmation hearing yesterday with all these issues right at the heart of everything. It's interesting. I wonder if all of the council members have been in the jail. The, the But we have not had uh, them call in Corey Swaysgood in a hearing and say, Corey, why are you leaving? Is there is there an, a structural issue in this government that's causing this? They haven't brought people in, at least as far as I can see, to talk about how a drug ring could operate in this jail during all of this scrutiny. Um, you know, Mark, we've we've addressed this with Cleveland City Council, where we've hammered away at Kevin Kelly, the council president, for not holding hearings on important issues. What's it take? It's a great soapbox to be on council, whether it's county or city. And uh, I, as a columnist in, in our editorial board, have argued they should do more with it. They've always tried to fall back on this idea that, well, we're getting things done peacefully. You know, we're kind of hearing that with the county now. Uh, and, and behind the scenes, but there is value in the big public hearing because it, it gets the attention. It puts those sitting across the table from them on notice. That has a really chilling effect within, you know, the administration side. No one wants to be called before and have to do that. You see it with the city. And, and I think the county now is waking up 
a little late um, on the county jail issue. This should be a weekly right. issue, pounding away, because this news keeps getting in front of them. Right. I mean, I mean, it's problem after problem. What point does counsel say enough is enough and have to take the reins of guiding that reform? We seem to, They seem to be still waiting for a reaction from the administration. Then they react. Um, again, there's plenty of smart people on that council. They they can use this soapbox, and I think they should. And they can they could lobby. They, I mean, if they're not able to launch the hearing, they have the ability to to get in Dan Brady's face and say, "Come on, we're not doing." And, and there's job. one other point that kind of ties us all back to what we were just talking about with Adam, in 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 the list of the who's who. Um, when you go back to 2010, we did similar lists. There were over a hundred people in that list, and again that list that attention helped drive that reform effort help convince voters to support it so now they have a chance to prove that this is a better system than it was prior to 2010 and uh, we're waiting to see if that happens good point wrapping up the segment we turn to some state news wending its way through the legislative process is an idea for a tax cut rich you analyzed the latest house proposal and found a strange one an anomaly that could have some people wishing that they actually earned less money this uh sure looks like a case of either being sloppy or maybe sneaky but um they're typically a tax table start from zero and go up on income that's the way it works on the federal tax table once you do your adjustments, and that's the way it worked in Ohio for years until two years ago. But now the, the, the big PR that comes out of the tax cut is no one under the income level of roughly 22000 will pay any taxes and will reduce the rates for everybody else. But when you get to that cutoff level just above 22000 uh, it doesn't start from zero there. It starts off at what the figure would be if the tax rates were in. So you'd make $22,250 after your adjustments. You have no tax bill. You make a dollar more, you got a tax bill of $300. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Now, and it's not final. The Senate will have its say and we'll go through things. But uh, it was a good catch and, and one that did kind of raise some eyebrows. At first, I thought it was a mistake. But then when I looked back, I saw it on a much smaller scale when they did this two years ago. That's where they first introduced this idea. And the, the change wasn't that big then. It was like 60 or $70. And they carried it through. So it makes me wonder, you know, was that a part of the whole plan to, to be able to afford to get the rates under um, Governor Kasich's at the time covered a level of 5%. He wanted the highest rates below 5%. Perhaps it was, it was designed to do that or perhaps it was an accident. But, but the dollar figures would have helped him get there. Okay, we'll take a break. This is This Week in the CLE. We've been telling you for a few weeks now about Project Text, in which you and our writers engage with each other through text messaging. Here's a great deal, a free trial to Project Text for the month of May. Sign up at cleveland.com slash project text slash free trial and get daily text messages from your favorite writers, like Browns Beat reporter Mary Kay Cabot, sports columnist Doug LaMarise, and pop culture guru Troy Smith. We're back on This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Kuhn here with Mark Namick. And in this segment, Rock the Lake coordinator and Cleveland.com editor Laura Johnston and reporters Mary Kilpatrick and Pete Krause. Mary rolled out an outstanding project this week, a collection of thoughts and advice from women leaders in Cleveland. Mary, how many women did you profile and what were the three or four biggest takeaways you found in their advice? 
So we reached out to about 20 women. We heard back from 16 of them. And honestly, when we first launched this project, we didn't know what we were going to get. And so the response was really great to get that many women willing to talk to us about what it takes to get women uh, equally represented in uh, leadership. So what we found, right, barriers still exist for women to enter leadership. For every 100 men promoted into management roles, 79 women are. Uh, women still make up a very small percentage of senior leadership in corporations. What these women told us, it, there are a few ways to fix this. One being sponsoring women. And that's not just mentoring. That's if you're a hiring manager and you're in the room, you're advocating for women to enter leadership roles. One of the women I spoke with said, if you only interview five white guys, you're going to hire a white guy. So it's about being cognizant about inclusivity, being cognizant about the people you're bringing into those discussions. Two, um, I would say the women acknowledge that a confidence gap does exist uh, in many women where they don't necessarily feel like they belong in the conference room. They don't necessarily feel like they um, belong in senior management because they don't see anybody who look like them in those roles. Um, and in order to change that, we need to uh, build women's confidence and say, yes, you can do this. One of the things that I've heard repeated over and over again is if a man looks at a, a job description and he sees that he has, you know, maybe 60% of the qualifications, he's like, oh, yeah, I should get this job. If a woman sees that she only has maybe 60% of the qualifications, she's like, oh, no, like, I can never do this. I, I'm not qualified enough. They would never hire me. They would never think of me for this role. And I think it's really about building women's confidence up and having people in management say, no, you can do this. I think there are some really great stories we got from women, women like Trisha Griffith, uh, head of Progressive, who told us about how she used to go under cars um, to do the claims because she started at the very lowest spot as a claims representative, worked her way up. Um, and she was in her hose and her um, heels and just what it was like to deal with the men in a body shop or the prosecutor of Summit County who said she had an opposing counsel once say, little girl, come here to the judge's chambers. So these aren't women that have just had a smooth road. Um, they've faced adversity. They have spoken out against sexism. Um, and they're giving advice to a, uh, a younger generation of women on how it what it takes to get to the top. Yeah. And I think that would lead into my third takeaway, which is that sexism really is alive and well in the workplace. Um, every single woman I talked to had a story. Some of them were willing to go on the record about it. Some of them aren't. And I think that um, kind of hints at how this is still difficult. Their advice for when you get an inappropriate comment or, you know, sexist behavior, they said, you know, address it immediately, report it immediately. You're likely not alone. At the same time, you know, they recognize this is still a hard thing to do. Um, and it's not necessarily easy to try to report somebody uh, for saying something that, you know, was a bad joke or something inappropriate. So I, I think, you know, with sexism, I, I think one of the things that we learned is it's everywhere and it doesn't matter where you are as a woman, if you're the top of the chain or you're, uh, you know, an entry level worker, uh, every woman has an experience with it. One thing that became clear in reporting this project is how closed leadership positions in greater Cleveland are to women of color. Two of the 16 we profiled were women of color and two others declined to participate. Laura, you wrote a story about this. What has to happen to change that landscape? Well, I think it has to be, like Mary said, very intentional. And I think 
um, we've talked to, we talked to Phyllis Harris, the head of the LGBT center about it. And she is black. And she said, look, they're, they are leaders. They're at the fringes. And so we were looking for really influential women in Cleveland. And so we want to be able to bring those up. Um, the appreciative inquiry summit that's going to happen, uh, later this year, I believe that is going to be a topic of, dis- of discussion, how to bring more, uh, diversity to the tops of all uh, organizations in Cleveland. So it's something that I think this town really needs to work at. And like Mary mentioned some of the specifics, um, there's not a lot of women in management. There's not a lot of women of color in management. So nationally, it's a really low statistic, and it's something that the city needs to work on. You know, it can't be lip service. We can't have one day where we talk about how diversity and inclusion is important, and that fixes the problem. This needs to be in the minds of leaders who are making hiring decisions. You know, you mentioned appreciative inquiry, and, and the, the goal of that is to get 800, 1,000 people together to imagine what Cleveland should be in 12, 15 years with a focus on, on uh, economics. Um, to feed that conversation in June, uh, there, there are a bunch of things called Common Ground Conversations sponsored by the uh, Cleveland Foundation. They cover a wide variety of topics, but there's a thought that, that if enough people participate in that, and talk about topics like this, uh, it can make sure that this is front and center. How do you ensure that women, women of color, have the chance to to survive? Um, Mark, you you talked to the new head of the NAACP. What was the yeah Danielle S- Sidnor, uh, and she's coming at the leadership role with a real focus on economic inclusion and equality. And part of that is because she's a former banker and runs a nonprofit now that is focused on trying to seed entrepreneurs, and not just black entrepreneurs, but uh, female entrepreneurs, which is even a subset of how hard it is, you know, within in that community. And, and there's a real strong belief to kind of help support, and, and, and as everybody just mentioned, grow, mentor. You've got to start getting capital, money, into the hands of African-American entrepreneurs. That's how you get noticed. That's how you get a seat at the table. And uh, that's going to be a real focus. And I think you have to – I think a lot of work is going on on this issue by both uh, the Urban League and uh, the President's Club, two, two groups that are, are, are focused on that. They know it best. They're dealing with it every day. And uh, we talked at length about some of these uh, organizations that exist out there that we, you know, could do a whole podcast on that aren't aren't getting enough capital into their hands. So that issue is is front and center. And I, I hope that the NAACP carries that to the forefront. Mary, wrap this up. Yeah, I just want to make a point, um, and I thought this was the most interesting thing out of this whole conversation. This cannot be a conversation only among women. Men have to be part of the solution. Men are at the top. Men make up the majority of senior leadership. They need to be aware of how their corporations, how their businesses can grow and develop if they have a diverse group of voices, if they have women at the table. Um, studies show that the more women you have, the more diversity that you have at the top helping you guide your leadership decisions, uh, your company benefits. Well, it's a terrific package, and uh, we thank all the women who participated. A lot of wisdom in what uh, Mary published this week. We talked last week about Pete Cross's project, about the failed attempt to merge governments in St. Louis, and what lessons Cleveland could pull from that. This week, Pete collected reaction to that to his uh, pieces in Cleveland. What did you hear, Pete? Well, I talked to seven different. Well, I talked to a lot of different people, but seven that were included in my story, and I found that everybody was 
quite fascinated by what was going on in St. Louis, some a little more than others. Um, and uh, they were intrigued as to what, you know, how the St. Louis situation could inform uh, the discussions that are going on here in Cleveland. Um, I was particularly taken by the comments by Georgine Wheelow, who's the mayor of South Euclid. She knows firsthand how difficult it is for a municipality to function uh, in this day and age, especially around around here, how much uh, you have to do, uh, uh, try to do more with less. I asked her, I said, what would happen if, if tomorrow they decided to merge the city of Cleveland, the county, and all the municipalities? And she said she'd welcome it. No, no questions asked. Look, th- this is a topic that's suddenly very relevant. You know, the GCP came out about a month ago with a study that looked at our local taxes and found that among peer cities were among the very highest and suggested we needed to start having a more holistic conversation about taxes instead of having a series of one-offs. And then this week, the county is talking about the emergency need for social services money, the possibility of asking voters for a tax increase this fall. How might the tax discussion, along with uh, your reporting on St. Louis and the continued reporting you do, how might this affect the future? Well, if you're not growing, you're not increasing your tax base, which means if you need more money to function, you're going to have to raise the rate. And that just may, that just puts the burden on all of us, uh, increases the burden on all of us. So you have to figure out a way to stimulate the economy in this area. And one of the ways of doing that is through merger, through eliminating a lot of duplication of services, being more uh, um, uh, united in the way we approach economic development, the way we go after businesses. There's all kinds of things that, uh, in theory, could um, help this area grow, you know, by merging, by collaborating, uh, and uh, um, uh, and a lot of and, and we're looking now at a lot of areas that have done something similar to see if if you know it it is the way for us to go. All right, and your next stop is going to be Indianapolis to see how their uh, their government runs. They were one of the longest uh, longest in history of having a unified government. Um, okay, Governor Mike DeWine this week proposed having a uniform statewide policy on police chases. Laura, why do we need that? Well, it's been a big discussion point in Cleveland since at least 2012, which was the infamous 137 shots case um, where two people died. Um, and the idea is that you know police chases do not just stay within city limits. So you get everybody on the same police chase policy, then they'll all be on the same page. Uh, there were about uh, three years ago, they came, uh, Mike DeWine came out with recommendations, and a lot of uh, police departments have adopted those. But everybody that Evan McDonald, who wrote the story, talked to said they'd welcome a state standard so that everybody would um, know where everybody else stands. So um, I We'll see where it goes in the future, but I don't think anyone's calling it a bad idea. The scary thing is when you talk to police about chase policies, they say the people that learn about them first and employ them the most are the criminals, that that they learn when they won't be chased and how they won't be chased uh, and try to take advantage of that. Cleveland police have a pretty strict chase policy now because of the, the, the case you mentioned um, and, and the criminals know that, that if we go fast enough and get away fast enough, we won't be chased. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all folds into the conversation. Moving from the roadways to the river channel, Laura, you had a piece this week that ran with a photo of two guys rowing a giant inflatable pink flamingo raft. 
but the story really wasn't fun. It was about the idiotic things people do when an enormous ship is moving along the Cuyahoga River toward them. Tell us about some of these dopey things the ship captains have seen. Well, I think that that photo made the uh, story, right? The pink flamingo all blown up. But it is a really serious discussion, one that's been going on for at least two years now in the river. It... um the we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the river fire this year and the recovery of the river and everyone's super excited but in the last five years or so the issue with the river is more so the crowded uh, conditions we have rowers every day on there the big um eight-person uh, boats. We have freighters that don't have a schedule. We have the Good Time 3 and the Nautica. Uh, Stand-up paddle boards, kayaks, anybody can rent those. And apparently people in rafts and just pools. We had um, we had guys throwing uh, tennis balls to their dogs in the 23-foot deep channel. Uh, so we have people in kayaks who think, oh, it'd be really cool to touch a freighter. And these freighters are as long as the t- terminal tower is tall, so they are big. But but you have yes. spent the last year and a half trying to convince people through Rock the Lake that the waterfront is something they should partake of, right? Absolutely. That, that, that this is a great recreational setting. It is. You should come down. And now we're saying, well, I'm not telling you not to come down here. And I have paddleboarded on the Cuyahoga River, but I wear my life jacket and I have a leash on my stand-up paddleboard, which means you have a, um, a connector from your ankle to your board so that you can't ever get more than like 10 feet away from your board, it, which can act as a float. Um, you should know the rules. You should know uh, what five blasts of a horn means. You should know your area just because it protects you and those freighters have the right away like you might think they don't want to hit me and they don't want to hit you but you want to make sure that you stay safe because you're not going to hurt that freighter have we had any accidents uh there's been accidents there have not been any deaths but i've been at meetings where people stand up and scream like somebody's going to die and so they've been very proactive there are ambassadors going to be on the river this year we're adding signs to the river and and nobody wants to tell you not to come down there we want you on the river we just want you to be smart all right We talked earlier about the need for Cuyahoga County Council to do some leadership and oversight. That's something our editorial board has also said is missing at Cleveland City Hall, where Council President Kevin Kelly has just not been getting to the bottom of controversies. This week, Mark, that might be changing. Council President Kevin Kelly is going to hold hearings soon, and he's put a date on that of the next month or so on uh, these issues that happen out at the airport, security breaches involving and this is the key here, top city officials, where the city has not released information about discipline. So that's a worthy hearing. And where things stand with the city's police headquarters. There were a lot of money at stake, a lot of tax dollars. And why and what led to the collapse of a deal between the city and the owners of the plane dealer building not, it's plan. not us. We're, we're, we're advanced, not. advanced Ohio does not yeah. own the building. We just it, reside here. And the issue here is it was publicly disclosed that this could potentially save them lots of money, uh, $20 million plus if they came into a, a building that only needed some retrofitting versus building a new new deal. And the deal collapsed. So where, does, where do things stand? Why did it collapse? Is there another option out there that's better? Uh, and, and those are answers that were not there. And it's, I think we have to say that, you know, Cleveland.com and their reporting and editorializing has pushed the council a bit on this issue. So I'm hoping Kevin is doing this for the right reason <laughs> that the public needs to know this information, not just to get us uh, off his back. 
Okay, after the break, we'll be talking about uh, Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish's sustainability initiative. This is This Week in the CLE. If you're enjoying our This Week in the CLE podcast, you'll want to subscribe to Cleveland.com's free morning newsletter, The Wake Up. It's waiting for you in your email when you arise each morning to bring you news from overnight in the previous day. If you read The Wake Up each morning, you're up to date. Subscribe at cleveland.com slash newsletters. We're back on This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn here with Mark Namick and Laura Johnston. In this segment, sports editor Dave Campbell and reporter Emily Bamforth. But before we start, we have a quick conversation with Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish about his initiative on sustainability. Armin talked a good bit about this in his State of the County speech, focusing a lot on his plan to plant as many as 50,000 trees to rebuild the tree canopy. Um, what I'd like to do is talk about some of the other initiatives that you're laying out this week in, in greater detail. Let's start with the, uh, your, your, your drive to, before the end of summer, put together a, a plan by which we can have charging stations for electric vehicles. Um, you say that we really don't have uh, enough of these to, to make electric vehicles sustainable. What's the thinking there? Well, uh, s- electric vehicles are, are here. Um, and they're just going to grow. There's going to be more and more electric vehicles um, that are being built and sold, and uh, we want to make sure that we're serving people who want to have electric vehicles. And right now, there's there's so few uh, charging stations that people can use. There's, I think, like 50 publicly available charging stations in Cuyahoga County. That's nothing. I mean, it's not anywhere near enough. So we want to support uh, the infrastructure uh, so that there will be uh, maybe at least 250 or 300 charging stations around the county. So people who want to have an electric vehicle can do that. And that means, that could mean the, the county is actually helping to build these things. That's right. We're working with the planning commission. We're working with others uh, to first come up with a plan. Where is the best place to put these things? Uh, how many do we actually need to be uh, to be uh, useful for for uh, people who want to have electric vehicles, and then uh, and then we'll uh, work with NOACA uh, to fund these things. Okay, another big part of your plan is to expand the solar initiative that you've begun in the past couple years uh, with big fanfare and a landfill out in Brooklyn. What what's the solar part of your plan? Solar energy is is a way to uh, first deal with the climate. Uh, change that's going on to cut emissions. It's it's renewable energy, and people can save a lot of money. So, uh, on you you mentioned the the landfill. The we we have I think thirty five thousand solar panels on a landfill in Brooklyn, uh, and it is generating electricity. You know, I know people look at Cleveland and Cuyahoga County, and it's cloudy. There's plenty of sun for solar power here in Cuyahoga County. So uh, we're expanding what we're doing. Uh, we're putting solar panels on three of our buildings, three of the county buildings, um, at the medical examiner, the animal shelter, uh, and uh, a new um, uh, building that we're building for public works. And uh, we anticipate that we'll be able to save something like $900,000 for county taxpayers over the next 
you know, 25 years or so. So that project is a significant one. We've, we've been supporting solar co-ops for residents around the county. Uh, we've been doing educational programs. We've been supporting uh, people who want to put solar panels on the roofs of their homes. Uh, and uh, we uh, believe we can do a whole lot more there. Um, so so uh, that's a part of our solar plan. And then uh, I, I, going back to the solar panels we're putting on county buildings, we are going to make that available through power purchase agreements to other uh, city buildings uh, around the county, and they can tie in and get the same price we're getting. You also have a plan to create a, a $25 million fund that might help commercial or private interests um, get some low low interest financing to do similar things on their buildings. Correct. Uh, it's called the Green Bank. Uh, there are uh, several states, and I believe Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, has a Green Bank, uh, and these have, are growing. And we've had the people who who uh, are organizing and putting these together into uh, Cleveland, Cuyahoga County. Um, they're excited about coming to the Midwest right now. I think most of them are in, on the on the coasts. Uh, but a green bank uh, can support energy efficiency programs uh, throughout the county. So, for example, if a manufacturing business wants to uh, make uh, some of their machinery more efficient, uh, the green bank might support that. Um, if uh, uh, it, it can support residents, you know, we were talking about the solar panels. If if um, uh, a, a resident wants to put solar panels on their home, uh, but they can't afford the, the upfront costs, even though the savings may would likely save more than the cost over time, uh, the Green Bank could help support and finance that initial upfront cost for those homeowners. So there's a lot of things a Green Bank could do. Yeah, and I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Armand. I I think these green banks, right? Their their mission isn't to make money off of it. They're trying to do this out of, you know, these are are phil- philanthropic funded. I think uh, the Cleveland Foundation supports these, and the idea really is to spur the larger industry, and uh, you know, obviously to get 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 us as you know as a lifestyle to embrace this. Absolutely right, Mark. Um, these these uh, uh, green banks, they're not grants, so they're not just giving the money away. These projects have to have some commercial or, or um, financial viability, uh, but they're certainly not out to make money. These will be low low cost uh, uh, projects. And hey Mark, I know biking is, is near and dear to your heart. It's one of your big hobbies. Uh, ask Armin about what his plan is for improving that. Well, I have uh, heard the county talk a bit about bike lane barriers and better striping um if you could just in a in a sentence or two how are how where where does that stand what is the the goal or where do we want to start with uh adding more bike lanes well as as a bike bicyclist you you would well understand this that right now we have lots of paths lots of trails out there and they're not connected Uh, so you know you might be able to go you know so far on your bike, but then you got to get off and walk it, and you know, or stop or turn around. Uh, if we can connect these existing bike paths, these existing pedestrian trails, 
uh, it would make the county so much more uh, uh, it, it's so much better. I mean, it's it's a way to it's an alternative path to get to wherever you're trying to go. Plus, it's recreational. And, and aren't so, you trying to connect then with like the plans for like the Greenway and other areas that are going to be in, already investing money in a you know in a dedicated path to then help connect? Because I spend right. a lot of time on the road on my bike with road rage because. I battle with the drivers. So. Right. Your road rage or the driver's road rage? <laughs> no, it's me. <laughs> but, but you're right, Mark. Cause, yeah. uh, so we do a lot of road projects already. We do uh, maintenance. We do construction. We do you know, all kinds of road projects. As part of those projects, we will start to build in uh, either, either additional space for bikes. Uh, we can put up barriers uh, to keep the bicycles safe so you, you don't have to worry about the road rage. Um, uh, we can do striping where that's appropriate. Uh, so as part of what we're already doing, we can help connect these existing bike paths uh, to to other existing paths. Okay. Thanks very much. Courtney Ostafi will be writing about the many elements of this that you're unveiling uh, this week, and uh, we'll look forward to see how they go. Thanks a lot for, for talking to us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Next, we turn to perhaps the most talked about news of the week, the selection of a new coach for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Owner Dan Gilbert did not go to the usual suspects for this one, Dave Campbell. Who did he choose, and why is that choice so unusual? Well, they're bringing in a college coach named John Beeline from the University of Michigan. It was a little bit of a surprise because a lot of people, a lot of the reports we've been seeing were that they were interviewing uh, up-and-coming NBA assistants. So this was a little bit of a surprise. Um, the AD at Michigan wasn't a surprise because John Beeline did interview for a job in Detroit last summer and then withdrew his name. But this is something he's really wanted to do for a long time. It's a little bit of a surprise. But the people who know John Beeline know that he is a gym rat. He loves coaching the game, and he loves developing players, and he's won everywhere he's been, and that kind of fit with the Cavs. We're looking for someone who could come in, develop young players like Colin Sexton. Well, and he, and as I understand it, tell me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. he's not a guy that dealt with a lot of superstars, and yet he went to the finals twice, right? Yeah, and, and a lot of people are wondering if that's one reason that he decided to go to the NBA because it's kind of a level playing field, and everybody knows about this college basketball trial that's been going on with the scandals and the payoffs, and Part of me wonders if he was just tired of that and he wanted to go to the NBA because he can just coach. And um, he was at the lottery last night. He's reached out to other NBA coaches, and they've all told him, you're going to love it. You don't have to worry about recruiting. You don't have to worry about boosters. You can just worry about practices, games, coaching, running a team. And that seems like that's something that really appealed to him the last couple of years. What was remarkable, though, I mean, he's, he's playing in the Big Ten, which has Michigan State and Ohio State and, and other teams that have had histories of being good. But over the time he was there, he, his success rate was pretty remarkable. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he started out as a JV coach at a high school in New York called New Fane High School and just worked his way up uh, over the last 40 years. When he got to Michigan, he was there for 12 years. He ends up their all-time winningest coach. He won two Big Ten tournament championships, two Big Ten regular season championships. They were in the national title game in 2013 and 2018. The guy just won everywhere he's been. And they, they just thought it was a good fit for him. And uh, it's a big jump to go from college in the Big Ten and to the to the NBA, and he knows that. So. Well, you know, Dan Gilbert is a, is a Michigan State alum, right. as are both of my kids. Uh, and I should point out, Michigan lost to Michigan State three times in the most recent season. Um, there's kind of a joke going around that Dan Gilbert did this half to get a good coach, but half to, to help Michigan State in the Big Ten. 
Yeah, it's going to be different. I mean, the Michigan-Michigan State basketball rivalry the last 10 years has rivaled Duke-North Carolina and any other rivalry in college basketball because of how good the teams have been and because of the two coaches. And so they're going to miss that. But, I mean, Dan Gill, people who know Dan, they know that he cares about winning and he wants the Cavs to succeed. And, and I'm sure he won't mind seeing the Spartans win a few more games if John's gone. But uh, <laughs> I think the Cavs are at the top of his list. So, Laura. So do you think Ohioans can embrace a coach from Michigan? Listen, he can wear and change the uniforms to blue and gold if he wins. <laughs> Just win. Turn this team around. I don't think people care. They want to win. As I we know. Saw I did hear this we week got in the our one championship. Who would have thought we wanted the Cavs to have the Browns record? <laughs> yeah, the the um, I think if this was a football coach, it would be a lot bigger deal. But basketball is not quite king in Ohio. And I think people will, you know, everybody said Braylon Edwards when he was a Brown. He always complained that the, that the fans didn't like him because he was from Michigan. I think this is basketball. I think it's going to be a different deal. Is there any history of the NBA of a college coach coming in and doing well? Yeah, you know, uh, Tim Bielek from our staff did a post on that the other day. Over the last 25 years, there's probably been almost a dozen guys who've done it, some with not much success and some who've done pretty well, like Billy Donovan. And, um, you know, it, it all depends. And it's a different game right now. There, it's a different game than it, than it was 25 years ago. And a lot of these college coaches are finding it easier to adapt. And John Beeline's a great teacher. He's been around the game forever. Um, you know, he's going to have to learn the tr- how to handle the travel how to handle the the NBA rules, how to handle players that, you know, are are older and more demanding and have contracts. So there's it's going to be but he knows he has a lot to learn and he says he's going to lean on people to do that. All right, we also had some sad Cavs news after a lot of luck in the draft lottery over the years. We had a worst-case scenario play out. So, Dave, what pick do we get, and will there be anybody decent to draft at that point? Right. So the Cavs were hoping to finish with the number one pick, obviously, as everybody is, and the big prize was Zion Williamson, who's just this high-motor, intense, high-leaping, high-dunking player from Duke that everybody has coveted this year. Uh, the Cavs ended up fifth. A lot of people are saying, including including Chris Fedor, who covers the Cavs for Cleveland.com, he's saying it's kind of a three-player draft, and from four to seven, there's a lot of variables there in terms of what a team is looking for. Um, and so it's going to be interesting. The Cavs have a lot of work to do in terms of the NBA combine coming up in Chicago, bringing guys in. And actually, when, when you bring guys in, you can work them out in the NBA so they'll be able to see them on the court, see what kind of shape they're in, what kind of tools they have, and how it'll translate. So there's a lot of work to do, but there are some players here that they think they can get to be good NBA players. Any chance they trade the pick? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of um, teams that are kind of uh, good trade partners um, and we're going to see that kind of unfold here now that the, the final order has been set. All right, staying on the sports theme, Cleveland's going to be overtaken this weekend by many thousands of people driving themselves through agony to complete the Cleveland Marathon. And some will lose their toenails in the process, as Emily Bamforth reported. Uh, you've been writing about the marathon all week. What have mm-hmm. you learned? I've learned people love the marathon. And when you look at all the different stresses that the marathon can put on your body, including the repeated impact on your knees, the bruised toenails, the toenails potentially dropping off from the running. Uh, It's just a long training process. So on top of the long distance you're running on that actual day, there are several training runs, and then you're just practicing for months and months and months. So it's a huge stressor on your body, but we put something out there on cleveland.com asking people why they still do it. And the biggest thing is that sense of accomplishment. This is the one area where 
non-professional athletes can compete with competitive athletes. Basically, if you go out there and you're running a marathon, you're doing an elite athletic activity. So racing is one space where you can really feel that sense of accomplishment. We have a couple of staffers who've, who've run them. Hannah Drown, our, our Facebook live reporter, and Cliff Pinkard, our overnight reporter. And they put together some some tips or or thoughts about it. Uh, what what was interesting in those, Laura? So they did 26.2 thoughts that go through your head when you're running a marathon from the elation at the beginning to the, oh my God, it hurts so bad. And did a guy in a Statue of Liberty costume just run past me? Um, and they make it pretty clear that this is a mental feat as well as a physical. And it is a bucket list item for a lot of people. We have 15,000 people coming to run uh, three different races on Sunday. And there's a couple other races on Saturday. Um, and they just want to be able to say that they've done it. And I, I've watched the marathon. My husband runs them. I've never run a marathon. But when you see that crowd of people, just like those photos of everybody running over the bridge, it's a pretty spectacular scene. And it's, it's pretty awesome to watch people achieve their dreams. Mark, I know you ride a, a bike a lot now, but I think you have run in a marathon or something like it. Before. I did. I checked it off my bucket list at an early age. I ran what was then the Cleveland Revco Marathon when it would go from downtown out Lake Road and back, a straight shot, beautiful run. Uh, I ran that when I was 13 years old. Wow. I did it in three hours, 33 minutes, and two <laughs> the seconds. The entire thing at 13? Age 13. He uh, exactly and I And I can tell you, even at that age, I'm coming up on my 40th anniversary. Maybe next year I'll run it. Um, <laughs> even at that age, it really was what you just described. It was a mental feat, You know, obviously a lot of training, but it's also been, in my mind, and I do a lot of competitive sports now and biking, it's still the greatest athletic feat I've personally accomplished and that I feel I've accomplished. And that's what drives people. And even this many years later, I still check in with it every year. That's amazing. Yeah. One of our commenters said, you can't understand the marathon until you've actually done it. And I completely can see that. I have run a 10K before. I don't think I could ever get up to a marathon, but I think it's an experience that that group of people really love. It's emotional. Mm-hmm. You see them finish and they're just the tears. and Yeah, the, the tears from the pain. agony. Not just the agony. Okay? <laughs> That's it's pain. the accomplishment. All right. Some of the people training for the marathons do so in the metro parks, and they're soon going to see something different on the roads there. Mark, what's the news you had about the metro parks this week? Rangers are no more. Rangers are going to be branded with the word police. And this has been an internal debate that actually goes back to about 1921 when uh, the Metro Parks Law Enforcement Force was put in place. They were called police back then. 1967, they changed the name. And their website talks about how it was a big change and an important change and one they believe was perfect because the Ranger kind of gave a, a larger conveyance of, of what they do. You know, they're, they're in the parks, they're out with wildlife. Now there's this pushback, and, and I got some sources in, 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 in the department, and for a long time, a lot of rangers wanted it. They wanted people to not look at them as the same as the wide, you know, green hat wearing uh, uh, naturalist. preservation of naturalists yeah. down in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Uh, as you know, we've written a lot about that the Metro Parks has taken over 
the Edgewater, the lakefront park systems, they're dealing with a little more because they're, they're closer to, you know, a populated area. So they, they want people to perceive them more as police than some friendly guy that can tell them what those pansies are called in, you know, but, growing in the, in the bushes. But we do live in an age where the relationship. They do know flowers, though. Some of them do. The yes. relationship between people and police is not the best. And isn't there some value if, if you see them as rangers? That you might find them more accessible. Yeah, and that's the debate. This again is 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 debated among the rangers. There are about eighty five or so part and full time rangers. Uh, and remember, they're on twenty four hours a day, and you know year round. Uh, obviously, more in the summer when there's a lot more activity going on. Um, but it wasn't. Uh, they didn't take a vote, and it did not re- need approval by the board of commissioners. This was uh, something that the uh, new police chief, new of the last couple of years, came from Cleveland Heights, uh, wanted a push for, and it had the support of Brian Zimmerman, the CEO, and so it's happened. And they're doing it quietly, by the way. This isn't something they announced. Uh, we picked up on it in Cleveland.com a, a month or so ago when we saw a notation about it in some board meeting minutes uh, uh, that I saw for an unrelated story. And then in the last week or so, the sign out in front of the what was then Rangers headquarters in Fairview Park changed, and now it says uh, District Police Headquarters. Okay, we've got to take a break. This is This Week in the CLE. If you want to read what Ohio's decision makers read, subscribe to Capital Letter, your first read of the morning newsletter from Cleveland.com. It's packed with tightly written summaries of everything you need to be up to date on the state's political scene. Subscribe at Cleveland.com backslash newsletters. And we're back. We're in the final segment of This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn here with Emily Bamforth. And in this segment, Chief Politics writer Seth Richardson and reporter Mike Rose. We're here to talk about Game of Thrones, the HBO blockbuster series that wraps up Sunday. And because we talked in detail earlier about the challenges to women in leadership roles in Cleveland, Emily, let's start there. You have some strong thoughts about how women <laughs> characters are been tr- being treated this year. Uh, so let's talk about it. Well, to start off, this is not a new complaint with Game of Thrones. This has been a major problem throughout the entirety of the series. As everyone probably knows, it's based on a book written by a man, but when you put it on TV, there's an opportunity there to get more women in the room to talk about these characters' narratives. And there are a lot of strong female characters in the series, which makes a lot of people think, oh, this is a series that treats women well. Uh, it does not at all. If you look at the writing and directing credits, there are only a handful of episodes written by women and directed by women. And on top of that, the entirety of season eight does not have a female director or a female writer, uh, to my knowledge and, and based on the research that I've done. So you can kind of see that in the way that women are written in the show the strongest female characters have all been exposed to sexual violence. Some of them are written in to kind of treat sexual violence as a part of their character development. And it, it's, it's really terrible. So, so in the early seasons, did you think that the, the women characters were, were stronger and they've just been mistreated in the later seasons or has this been something from the beginning and if so why did you watch it's consistent uh it goes up and down there are a lot of women who are in leadership positions and who are fighting for for the throne um but 
the writers have taken some liberties. They've written in rape scenes where there aren't rape scenes in the books. Um, on top of that, you just look at the women in the final series. And for example, one of the strongest women, Brienne of Tarth, um, who was made a knight, the first female knight, uh, is left crying in a courtyard because the man that she uh, was in a romantic relationship, left her. Um, when really, if we go back to her character development, she more likely would have challenged him to a duel. <laughs> uh, so it's a complaint that we're seeing across social media. And the reason that I'm watching now is to finish up the series. It has been, I did almost stop on a previous season because it got too intense with the violence against women. Um but I think that it's something that they really should have taken into account and they had an opportunity to do and they just really whiffed. All right, let's go a little bit bigger. Uh, up until this season, um, fans largely um, were, were going along with, with the episodes. This season, it seems like every week, the, the longtime fans have become hypercritical of what's going on in the show. So what, do, what does everybody think about that? Has this show just kind of gone off the rails in this season? Yeah, well, y- yes and no, I guess. You know, th- if you look at the history of like final seasons of any show, I mean, I think if you, you know, you, no one's ever really happy. There's like maybe one or two series that you can really think of and they're like, Oh wow, that was perfect all the way through. The only one I can think of off the top of my head is really breaking bad, mm-hmm. you know, where everybody was satisfied. So I, I think it is partly, yeah, you know, this, this show has been really good and really great for a long time. But now it's, you know, it's just, they're clumsily heading toward the end game, you know, the finale. And, uh, but, but there are serious problems too, right? Like it's been rushed. I think everybody agrees it's been rushed. Um, so it's kind of, you know, uh, both of them kind of combined. But people are really hating on it. Well, I think a lot of that too has to deal with the fact that they've now surpassed the source material. And if you look at it, they don't have George R. R. Martin's works to fall back on and go, okay, what are we going to do here? How do we want to display this? And, and I think it's really shown this season that the writers just don't have the grasp on the characters that they've had in past seasons. I think there's definitely Seth spoke to this there's that pacing issue and i think that has to do with some demands placed upon them by the network by hbo um in terms of how many episodes they are there are and how many hours are there for them to play around with but at the end of the day i think it's just really clumsy writing and you're hearing about it a lot because everyone's watching this show so maybe it's not just the intensity, but it's also the broad viewing audience that we're working with. And we're heading to the final episode where we find out finally who takes the throne and everybody has a theory on <laughs> who will be the new ice king or ice queen or what's going to happen. Um, what, what do each of you think is the way this will end? Seth, you go first. Um, I, I guess maybe in a ball of fire. I don't, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I'm like, I guess I can say what I hope happens. I know we've only got 90 minutes left, but I'm hoping that there is some more closure on the Night King arc somehow. I'm, you know, it seems like a completely wasted plot point just mm-hmm. to be like, Oh, hey, yeah, you know, these guys are an existential threat and, but we did away with them in one battle. Um, it, there, it, there seems like there's more to do there. I don't necessarily need to know the motivations, but I do want, I, I'm kind of expecting there to be some kind of dark and light allegory there where there always has to be a Night King because there is a Lord of Light. It's proof, you know, the people have been brought back. So 
I'm expecting something like that. I don't know how that shakes out, though. That's an interesting point, though. When, when that happened, I mean, we've had the whole series has been the coming of these guys, right? And and they show up, and he's killed. It was like the scene in the in the in The Shining by Stanley Kubrick, where Scatman Crothers spends the whole yeah. time of the movie trying to get there. He walks in, gets whacked in the chest by Jack Nicholson, and dies, which wasn't in the book, and it was just a shock. Like, what was the point of that? Um, and you're right. If they don't come back and address it, it raises those questions. Emily, how do you think this winds up? I think that there are, <laughs> there are some really predictable endings to this. But what I'm really looking forward to seeing is how Bran Stark is going to be incorporated into the next episode. He's kind of just been sitting on the sidelines, creepily staring at people this entire season. <laughs> uh, but he's instrumental. He should be extremely present in this last episode and and if he's not there's no point to this character at all you could probably take him out uh besides that i really hope that they take the time to explain uh danny's spoiler alert motivations behind what she did um in the penultimate episode and and really write her some excellent explanations and monologues to explain that um besides that we're probably going to see Jon snow the lamest hero that i've ever seen in my life uh do something heroic so not <laughs> and not incredibly excited to see that say that was such resignation what about you mike <laughs> how do you think it winds down well i think it's a matter of who's going to kill danny is it going to be john or aria but after that i mean pretty much since he's been introduced john snow has found himself thrust into situations where he did not seek a leadership position and it was thrust upon him. It happened with the Night's Watch. It happened when he was named King of the North. It's going to happen again. He's going to end up on the Iron Throne, whether he wants to or not. Can, can I ask one question? Because like, I didn't answer it. I know that. I don't think you really answered it. Mike mm -hmm. kind of did. Who do we want to see on the Iron Throne and who do we think should have the Iron Throne? Sansa. Sansa, okay. I 100% agree with that. <laughs> Sansa is, has an incredible mind. She's predicted pretty much everything that's occurred at this point. The most competent ruler she in Westeros is. right now. And Jon Snow got himself into a problem at the Battle of the Bastards, and who was there to help him out but Sansa bringing in Littlefinger's armies. Mm -hmm. She has really proven herself to be a competent leader. Does that mean the Dragon Lady becomes the new Ice Queen? I, you know, I could see that somehow. I, I don't know. I, that's just what I hope happens. Like, I, I don't necessarily have a whole lot of faith that it will happen. It's just how I would probably kind of wrap all this up with a neat bow on it where, you know, if, if the Ice King is supposed to be like this existential greater than, you know, the humans, greater than Westeros, greater than Essos, whatever, uh, but he just ends up essentially being a henchman for, you know, the sake of the plot. Uh, I, I feel like there's got to be something deeper there. And I know they're doing prequels, but that's, you know, you're not watching this show for the prequel. You're watching it for something else. I think that's where Bran is going to come in is mm. the new Night King is going to come through and it, it's going to be tied to Bran somehow. Danny will probably die in some unceremonious way that will just disappoint everyone. Um, and then John will take her dragon because he can ride them. So I, I think we'll get the final answer in 20 years when the next Game of Thrones book comes out. <laughs> I, I do. I will say I'll give one firm prediction where I do think we are going to see Danny try to burn Jon Snow with a dragon and he's going to be unburned. Because yeah. he's a because he's Targaryen. Targaryen. All right. Yeah. Seth, you did a piece this week to coincide with the final episode comparing the warring and allied Game of Thrones factions to the factions <laughs> in our political landscape. 
first, well done. Very Thank fun. Uh, second, what were some of the highlights? Uh, so I, I really tried to have fun with this because, you know, a lot of my job is very serious stuff. So it's nice to kind of take a step back and do something that's a little more fun. And I also do, th- you know, so many people watch Game of Thrones that, you know, you and I kind of talked about this. It can be used as kind of a, uh, a good like teaching model. Um, because I, I mean, I said it in the piece that, you know, I watch Veep as well. And Veep is the most accurate political show on television. Very sadly, that's Bar true. No, like, <laughs> I, like absolutely. And pe- people in politics will tell you that. Um, but Game of Thrones has always been like the best political show because it, there's there's actual politics. It's not necessarily like the West Wing where everybody's idealistic and there's this Sorkin-esque dialogue. Um, so, you know, we, we, we talked about doing, you know, the characters and all that um, and eventually decided, hey, let's talk about the factions because that might explain sort of where we're at and, uh, you know, in American politics today. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I went through and uh, just kind of like – separated all the entities out and uh you know sort of thought about okay who do these people represent like who you know where where are the sympathies what are their strategies what are their motivations not necessarily their actions because there's some pretty horrible actions on game of thrones uh i tried to make that clear so um but yeah i mean i can just run through so who are the starks yeah yeah so the starks are uh i i view the starks as the public um just because they're the only real heroes of this show i i think it's pretty clear there um you know, and you they, look at they, the public as a hero yeah of okay. course All right. I, view, I view the public as a hero uh and i think um you know they didn't want to be a part of anything that happened in the show in the first episode you know Bra- robert Brathian comes up and says ned you're going to be my hand of the king and you know nobody wants him to do it the only one who does is sansa and that's because she kind of like idolizes the capital but when you look at the public i mean how many people do you talk to today and you know you bring up politics at all and everybody's involved but or has some kind of opinion but i mean i'll go anywhere and people just eye roll when you bring something like oh my god this again right are you guys good with that? You agree? Oh, yeah. The yeah. public is starts. All right. Oh, absolutely. Give us a couple more. So uh, I, I viewed the uh, the Targaryens, at least, you know, Danny, as uh, being kind of the Democrats, right? Uh, out of power, um, you know, used to control really everything, used to be a real force in uh, American politics. You look back, they controlled the House for something like 30 years. I don't remember exactly the number. Um, and then, you know, things changed, and all of a sudden they're kind of on the outside looking in, and uh, – the, 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 the best comparison I could come up with is, okay, she, you know, the, the Democrats are marching back, but there are these different kind of Democrats now all of a sudden where they're talking about Medicare for all and, uh, universal college education, that kind of stuff. And I view that as kind of like this weapon that they've never tried using I, before. I think Republicans would probably like this analogy because they would say that the Democrats have scorched yeah. the earth. <laughs> yes. yeah. no, in, it's, in fairness, I did have a lot of this written before Sunday. <laughs> so, so. All right. Give us one more. Uh, yeah. And so I looked at the, uh, Lannister as being sort of the the Trump faction of the Republican Party. Um, when you look at the Lannisters and you look at uh, you look at Cersei and uh, you know Cersei was sitting on the throne and in Westeros she had no real claim to the throne, right? She was the wife of Robert Baratheon and her kids had a claim to the throne. So she got there uh, you know s- sort of through wheeling and dealing and really through um, a lot of savvy that no one really appreciated for quite some time. Uh, not necessarily the viewer, but Everybody in the show kind of took Cersei for granted and said, oh, well, you know, whatever. It's, you know, she's nothing. She's just Robert's wife or she's just Tywin's daughter or something like that. Well, she had this, you know, kind of, you know, this, this sort of forethought to uh, uh, get in there and kind of build this movement and sort of get all these machines moving uh, years in advance. And I look at that as a lot like what Donald Trump did when – 
you know, people say 2016 just happened. Well, 2016 didn't just happen. The guy's been running for president since the 80s. But you're giving you're giving Trump the credit for that kind of strategic thinking. I think you have to give Trump a lot of the credit for that strategic thinking. He built a, you know, did he know what he was doing? I don't know. I don't know the motivations or the, the inside of Trump. But when you look at what kind of culture he fostered around himself and the, you know, what he tapped into and what he tried tapping into and he 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 saw something i don't know what it was but All right, i should say but by saying this seth <laughs> is not comparing trump supporters to a bunch of people that have incest that's not yes, part of this yes. comparison. <laughs> yes. emily, i'm not comparing democrats to people who right. just you know. yeah <laughs> emily i think that the the parallel is really good i really thought it fit it within the context of the show the only thing that i see that's different because even up to Cersei has been propped up by the people in her administration and she was bailed out by her dad and she's been bailed out by her brother and she's been bailed out by plenty of people. Uh, the public is ultimately who put Trump there and uh, nobody in the public cared or liked Cersei. Um, there are some parallels to be drawn perhaps, but nobody put her there. All right, check out the piece on cleveland.com. It's an entertaining and kind of fun way to enjoy the show. We got to wrap it up for this week on the CLE. I want to say thanks to Mark Namick, Mary Kilpatrick, Adam Fries, Pete Kraus, Emily, Laura Johnston, Dave Campbell, Seth, and Mike. Check in every Thursday night or Friday morning for the latest episode. I'm Chris Quinn, and you've been listening to this week in the CLE. Mm-hmm.